Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 80. If you created the conditions, even if the seed bank doesn't have the seeds, nature finds a way to put those seeds there. Actually, through wildlife, to birds, to livestock, to deer, to through the wind, to the water. But the important thing is to create the conditions for those seeds to germinate. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating cost. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's episode, we have Alejandro Carrillo, who ranches in the Chihuahuan Desert. And I hope I got all those pronounced right. I tried. Alejandro did a wonderful job on the episode today. I think you'll really enjoy it. So he talks about what he's doing in a desert environment to, to graze cattle, holistic management, etc. It's a really good episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. 10 seconds about my farm. Not much is happening here. Things are, are just progressing a little cooler, but we're supposed to have some really nice weather this weekend. I did purchase a Spanish buck and I was able to find one not too far from me that fits in really nice from Koi family line or Koi line of Spanish goats. I think it's going to work good on my does. Otherwise, things are going good. Lambs are growing out good. Cattle are still grazing on some some new property I have, so that's all going good. Enough about me. Let's talk with Alejandro. Alejandro, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today. It's my honor to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Alejandro, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Yeah, we actually are have a cattle ranch operation in the Chihuahuan Desert, which if you see the Chihuahuan Desert, is a desert that actually goes three states in the U.S. and four states in Mexico, northern Mexico. Uh, we have a 30,000-acre ranch. It's uh, mostly cattle, but we also run some sheep. Actually, we also run horses and donkeys as well, and a few goats. But the, the main operation is uh, cattle and sheep. And, um, well, you know, actually my, my, my background is in IT, in, in information technology, computer science. 
Because when I asked, yeah, when I was young and I asked my dad, uh, what should I study? He said, study anything you want, but run, but not, nothing related to ranching. I spent 15 years in the IT industry in a little bit in Mexico, but mostly in the U.S. And when my dad turned 70, he called me to help him at the ranch. So I've been at the ranch for right now for 18 years. When you came back to your ranch 18 years ago, was your dad using Regenity practices or how was the ranch managed at that point? Yeah, my dad was using pretty conventional practices. He didn't know any better, you know, and I think the things that sometimes we don't really see that we're going downstream, that we are actually degrading the place because it, it happened slow. And But even before I joined the ranch, I really wanted to manage the ranch in a different way. I really started kind of reading documentation about rotational grazing and other systems. But to my fortune, really, in the state of Chihuahua, where we are in Chihuahua, Mexico, we have a very good holistic management practitioners. So not only they gave us my first course on holistic management, but also they become mentors and friends to me, which that really make a big difference. And then together, like five or six people, we travel to many places around the world, obviously including the U.S. and South America, but also Africa, to learn from the best, to learn from the best. And that really been helping us to keep improving what we do. Sounds like a tremendous opportunity to go over and see in other parts of the world how people are doing it. Oh, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, what you do is actually try to grabs the principles and they apply the principles to your place in what they call like a customized, personalized, even tropicalized, even though we're not tropical at all. One of the cha challenges we have at the ranch is the low precipitation because you need to keep aware that our ranch only gets like eight inches, nine inches of rain per year. This particular year where we are now is quite a challenge year because we only have got two inches so far. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we're almost at the end of the rainy season. But yeah, I mean, where, where I am, at, we still can grow some grass during October, but that's pretty much it. Now, you've only gotten two inches this year. Have the past years been dry as well? No, the, the last year was a good year. I mean, we all oh, we yes. get about above average. We get about 11, 12 inches. So the good thing is that the last year was a good year and we were able to grow grass that we haven't even finished yet. We are probably were still three months of stockpile from last year, which is helping us to actually start stockpiling from next year. At this point in time, we what we do is we take a look at how much grass we have grown, and then we compare that to the stocks, the how, how many cattle we have, and then we make the adjustment whether we call more cows or this stock, or whether we keep what we have, or maybe, you know, like last year, we we kept our winners, our winners to to get into more steers. So this is an important time of the year for us to to make the adjustments. So, so the idea for us is to actually being able to carry the whole stock, the whole herd through the all through next year until the end of the monsoon of next year, which will be again in November. We know oh, him. Yeah. yeah. For us, it's very important to actually keep the operation that is very low cost. Now, 
one thing before we talk a little bit more about current situation, what we need to do there, you mentioned when you came back to the ranch, you'd done some reading and then you joined a holistic or you was able to work with some other holistic management and get some some visits to some other farms. What did you come home and do first? I think what, what we all should do is first to educate ourselves because we speak, we speak a different language. Reality is that if we try to help someone who hasn't been really educated or taken a formal training on holistic or any regime practices, there will be no understanding. I mean, first we need to understand what it's all about it. And then we start seeing things different, think different, see, see things different. And then we can actually have that common ground, that common ground to have a good conversation about what can be done. So for me, it was very fortunate because there was a course on holistic management, like a five Saturdays that actually laid the foundation for me to understand what my mentors were trying to tell me. Would you suggest someone looking into this, getting started, finding where a course located they can go to, or are there some online courses that work out well? I think I will say the combination because online courses are really good. Podcasts are really good. I mean, there's a bunch of information in a YouTube university and so on, you know? Yes. But also the in- interaction that gives you like a person, like a personal face-to-face training, in-person training, that really is invaluable. You need to have a community of rich in, uh farmers, ranchers that will support each other. And that way we're going to make, we're going to make more, much more advanced, much, much more progress. Yeah. That having, having that network so valuable. Now, once you went through the course, what did you all do on the ranch to, to do it differently? Back at the ranch. Well, you know, I have a lot of questions and a lot of excitement, you know, to try different things. And then what, what is today my, my friend Jesus? And uh, Elko Blanco, who was a certified instructor, they went to my ranch, they take a look at the ranch, and they suggested ways to develop the water, to develop the fence. And also, there's another very important factor, which is the genetics. Because, you know, the genetics that you have on a conventional management are very selective. Like our genetics that actually are like, you have a small group here, another small group there, another group there. And now you're trying to get all those groups of cattle together into a, a bit more competitive environment, you know, like more competition. Obviously, you're going to be moving those cattle as often as needed to keep the herd in a good, uh, in a good state. But you have to really have the, the, the cattle or you have to start selecting and calling for what you want. So the cattle should really be able to help you regenerate the land. What kind of cattle did your dad have at the, your ranch? We used to have Hereford, Hereford cattle. Then a lot of people start moving to more continental, like a Charolais. And then when things were not working because we were degrading the land, then we start putting Brahma because we thought it was a problem of the breed, you know? But the, the breeds were okay. I mean, I, I have really n- nothing particular to any breed. It's more what you do with the breed. Because nowadays we have more difference within a breed than a crossbreed. In our dry, high elevation environment, English breeds were well. It's just that the degradation that has taken place that were 
giving a very hard time because, you know, very dry, dusty, very hot. But I think we can bring back um, also the English breeds that we used to have. Is that the direction you continued was mainly with English breeds? Yeah, because, you know, I feel that uh, that you need to have something that you enjoy having. And because I was raised with Herefords and I I like the red cattle, so... We've been putting into what my, my dad used to have, like a Charlie with a little bit of Brahma. We've been putting Red Angus and Hereford. So we got a bit of a mix right now, but, but we're getting, we're heading to the right direction. Very good. And I know when you say, well, you were raised with Herefords, I hear it all the time. Laster said it in, in his philosophy that the, the color doesn't matter when they're hanging on the rail, but you, you go sell animals in our market. And black animals are preferred and people are going that direction and stuff. You know, color doesn't matter. But I get, just me personally, I get tons of aesthetic value from my red cows. Or I do like a little spotted in there because I grew up on dairy and I just can't get away from uh, a little bit of color out there I enjoy. And, And it's hard to, you don't want that affecting your bottom line. You want to be profitable without that. But... That's that's a consideration for me. I stay away from black cows because I just don't enjoy them as much. <laughs> well, I think we're on the same page. Nothing against black black cattle. I mean, there's great black cattle, great red. red oh yeah, red, red. But you know, I think you really need to be pleased about what you're seeing in your in your property. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, the color has nothing to do with the quality or the nutrient density of the beef or the meat that you're eating. But you know, you just want to. Be uh, pleased with what you're seeing. Yes. Yeah. Now you you had the course. They came out there. What was the the biggest challenge as you moved forward on your journey from conventional to more regenerative? There's there was so much uh, bare ground when I joined the ranch. I mean, let me tell you, we actually had that ranch for 45 years. 45 years, and we bought a good ranch. We degraded the ranch pretty bad. I mean, we, oh, we, yes. we bought a ranch that used to have grasslands and then nothing, like just bare ground and a bunch of mesquite and woody encroachment of woody plants. Why the encroachment of woody plants? Because nature always trying to cover the soil with something. So if we get rid of the grasses, nature's going to start sending something to cover like all kind of woody plants and also nauseous weeds. So we were actually... It's not that the people don't work hard. I think we, most ranchers and, and farmers work hard, but unfortunately, I think we're working on the wrong stuff. So that's why we encourage people to work for what you want and not for what you want. Because we spend a lot of time just fighting nature. And we say, oh no, that mesquite or that uh, juniper or that um, particular woody plant is actually displacing my, my grass. But th- I don't think that's the way it works. I think nature always sends something customized to you, to your management. So we say, no, I don't like that. Well, we need to change the management. But I think one of the biggest struggle that usually we have is how we actually embed ourselves into nature instead of trying to dominate nature instead of, and, and then also the other struggle is patient because if you have bare ground and then you're expecting with animal impact to go from bare ground to a perennial base grasses, which is what we're striving for, then that doesn't happen. You need to respect the natural succession going from bare ground to 
weeds and then to annuals and then to perennials. And then you start actually building the soil and you actually start fixing the water cycle through proper aggregation or airing the soil. So yeah, that, that's kind of a struggle most people have. The other thing is that, and I, I did have a, a, that at some point, is to think that, oh, if this plant is not eaten by my livestock, it's not good. Well, nature sensually, a lot of plants are, are not intended to be eaten, you know. They're intended to actually cover the soil, open the soil, feed in the microbiology, but not necessarily we have to eat all the plants or in our property. I think that's a, a very good point that people forget about is that succession of, of plants as you're establishing pasture or whatever. And that some of the plants, I, I've got a, a pasture place that the Cerisa Lespediza has gone crazy this year. And that, that's just management on my part. I did two things that really contributed to the Cerisa going crazy this year. One, I grazed it too much earlier in the year. And then I let the Cerisa get too mature. So all things that I can learn from and do better in the future. But that, that Cerisa was just, it took over because it was protecting the ground from the abuse I was causing there for a little bit. Yeah. And we, we, we have places where it just, the response for more intentional animal grazing. And when I say intentional is you have a large pasture or paddock and then you split it in two. Then you now you have two large paddocks, which is still very marginal animal impact. So what we're trying to recommend to the ranchers, farmers, is better for you to go and take a look at the best areas and then try to actually take a piece of that epic good area and then do more in more animal impact, more strong animal impact in such a way that you let's say that you decided to move every day for at least seven days. To, to do your test, then that, that those daily moves are going to have enough animal impact to make a difference, to actually grow more weeds. And there, I mean, there are some places that we just grow a lot of weeds. It's, it's part of the whole natural succession. And we, we tell people you're in the right direction. It's bad when you don't, when you don't, when you have bare ground and you're not growing weeds. I, I don't think that's a good sign. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, when you talk about rotating or moving your cows, what kind of target are you are you looking at a once a day move? Are you looking at a certain poundage per acre? What's what's some of your thought pattern on deciding how much area you're giving and how soon you're moving them? Yeah, well, yeah, as you mentioned, we have to people have to make a decision of how often they want to move. We started with uh, once a week and then every 3 days. And then I call one of my friends on the network and say, do you really see a difference? Because he was already moving once a day. And I asked him, do you really see a difference between moving once a day and every two days? And he said me, oh yeah, big time. Okay, let's go and go once, once a day move. See, the more frequent you move your herd, your livestock, the better the diet because you're preventing those peaks, you know, ups and down. So it's a more consistent. And it's been a couple of years that we're moving twice a, twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon. Now, you ask also the question about how many, for example, how many pounds per, per acre, right? Yes. Well, that really depends because we're always trying to size the paddock 
in 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 a twelve hour period because we're moving twice a day in a twelve hour period. So we say, okay, we have let's say in my case we have five hundred cows. How much do I need for five hundred cows? And that will depend really on the time of the year you are, whether it rained or it did not rain, and 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 where you are. You know where you are actually in the transition because when we were explaining about the natural succession. That doesn't mean that all the ranch is wheat or all the ranch is annuals or all the ranch is perennials. It could be a paddock that half of the paddock is perennials and half of the paddock is annuals. So by observing, you say, okay, I need to split it in two. Let's say that you need to split that paddock in two, and then that will be enough for 12 hours each one. But it really depends on that particular case, that particular example really depends how many of the grasses you have are perennials with some green and some how many are annuals. So it actually becomes like the art of grazing more than the science. Because if you're in a drought, then you will open up. You will open up because you will not have much green. See, cows really need to have some green. Because in our particular case, we don't supplement and then we are very keen into detecting that green. Saying, okay, if there's plenty of green, like in the growing season, yeah, we, we can go to 300,000 pounds per, per acre. But if that same paddocks, paddock is in winter, then we may lower to 100,000 pounds per acre. Or if that same paddock is near the range, but it hasn't rained and it's dry, then we can even lower, we can even get to 50,000 pounds per acre. So it's really that flexibility that we need to build in our systems, you know, because we're dealing with nature and there's so many variables and you cannot, I cannot say to people, this is the formula, this is the prescription. They really need to observe, then actually they could play with the time or the size and then make the decision almost, almost like an, uh, right on the spot. In our particular system or approach is that we actually change the size of the paddock. I mean, that is the, the building flexibility we have because some people say, okay, move faster, move slower. No, we don't play with the variable time we play with the variables like size area oh yeah yeah so that actually is the one determining what is the correct conditions for that paddock at that time of the year and whether it rain or not rain but the ones that give us the feedback every day or twice a day are the cows so we have learned to actually manage based on the well-being of the cows and you're working on the majority of the cows because now it comes the, the part of the genetics. Because Cal, if you think about it, we actually made most of the decisions on the low, on the on the low performing cows, on the cows who are struggling. You don't make the decisions on the average. You don't make the decisions on the good cows. Usually, for us, the decision is how much area to give. And if you have a lot of cows who are struggling, you're gonna give more area. That's why for us it's very important to actually be calling the low, the low performing cows often. And we call like once a month. We don't wait for that big event to happen during the year. We call often, often, often in order for us to try to keep the herd clean. You know, like, because when we go and open the gate, we actually, before opening the gate, we are wearing our predator hat. We're the predators. 
So we're looking for two or three or five cows, depending, which are at the bottom. Based on body condition, hair coat, obviously fertility, or they may be carrying a dinky calf. And those are, we wrote, wrote the numbers down. And then later on, we sort them out, out of the herd. So we keep cutting, you know, like calling that bottom in order for us to make better decisions on the whole herd. Otherwise, those cows will actually be the ones that we're going to be making the decision on. Interesting philosophy there that I'm not sure I had heard put into words, but you you bring up a, a great point when we're managing our cattle and we're looking at how much intake we need and what they need. We're looking at those poor for performing cows. In fact, if you think about a conventional person and they're thinking about supplement, they're looking at their poor for performing cows and deciding how much supplement to give them. Exactly. Um, I'll think about it. Ticks. I think about it. Flies. We're always looking at those cows that are struggling and then we treat them all. It's the same with, with the grazing management. We have, let's say we have 500 cows and 20 hours are struggling. We ended up speeding up, slowing down or sizing the paddock based on those 20. And that's what we're trying to avoid here. We're constantly calling those cows. And another very important thing here is that you're calling those cows at a good timing. Because timing in our industry is everything. If you, if you actually leave those cows for a while, months, then you may need to, it's going to be more costly because any cow with a problem will actually be bigger problem. That way you can actually save those cows. See what we do with those cows that we're calling. We actually send them to a nice, well-rested pasture where they usually just record by themselves. You don't really need to do anything. You don't need to spend much in just management. And then once they get back on track, we sell them. They don't go back to the herd. It's just a one-way, one decision because otherwise then we're just going to be like back and forth. You know, I hate to, to point this out, but as you're sitting here talking, I've got one cow in particular comes to mind. She's raising a dink this year. And she got sick when she, when the calf was just barely born. I ended up having to bring her in and I ended up doctoring her. And I thought, mm-hmm. I'm selling her. But then she kind of recovered and now she's with the herd right now. But to be honest, and, and her calf's just not growing. I need to, I need to haul them to town. That just stands out to me. Yeah. And as we say, you know, love your wife or give your kids. Don't do any of those things to your cows. Yes. I mean, we love our cows, you know, but it's just like right. an example to say, you know, if you gotta go, you gotta go. I mean, I have sold beautiful cows with a dinky calf or, but yeah, I mean, any cow that actually is giving you, like taking you extra time, that's probably a cow that you shouldn't really have there. I, I love that thought right there. If that cow requires extra time. As I like to tell people when we sell cows, they don't work in our management system. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, how can we manage way more cows and be have a more quality time? Is because the cows really need to help us. I mean, we shouldn't really work for the cows. The cows should really be working for us. Yes, very good. Yeah. One thing when you're you're moving your cows, how much residue are you leaving on the ground when you move them to the next paddock? Or what's the target? What we do is actually try to graze as deep as possible, like even. 
But because we have different grasses, for example, we have the tobosa, which is very common grass in the Chuan Desert. That is, we usually live more like a fist high because they don't go lower than that. But actually, it depends really a lot how on the quality of the grass. If you see with a proper management, you're going to see how your grasses are very steamy and very little leaves. Through a few years of good grazing management, like more intensive grazing, then the same grass is going to have more leaves and less stems. And when the grass has more leaves, then the cows are able to eat most of the, most of the plant. So we're really not that concerned. Of, well, well, besides that grass, we have the grama, the blue grama, black grama, side oats. Many grasses that extend from northern Mexico all the way through Canada. Same grasses, probably different size, but the same species. And those kind of grasses, for example, in summer, in during the growing season, yeah, the cows just go pretty low on those grasses. The here, the idea is for you to actually combine that with a long rest period. And when we say long rest period, we're talking about one year or even a, a bit more. And that actually, I can tell you that that applies in most of the Western U.S. because we have seasonal rains and also all Northern Mexico, some parts of Central Mexico. It's that combination of more intensive grazing with a longer period that is really giving us more diversity. Because what we're striving here for is we don't want to work anymore for five or 10 grasses, Cal. We want to have more 100 grasses, 100 forbs. So we are, we are actually getting to working to having more diversity because also we have found that we had been working for a few species of grasses and we have inadvertently overgrazing the diversity that is trying to come up. So you know that, okay, most people say, yeah, let's go and graze that grass at a boot stay when it's forming the seed. Yeah, I mean, it's good for that grass. It's at a very optimal point. But we're not realizing that by trying to keep that same grass at a certain point, we're overgrazing forbs and other grasses are trying to come up. And yeah, and then if you have that diversity, for example, a four will have much more protein and much more energy than a grass. A grass cannot compete with a four. So that's why we want in our, you know, grasslands, pasture land, we want that combination, that diversity that will give us better, even better daily gains than trying to reach a grass at the optimal point. So when you're looking at those long rest times and, and maybe grazing once this year, you have the potential of grazing some very mature plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. I mean, we, we're, we're grazing more mature grasses, but that actually, you know, that is kind of re relative because, for example, when we start working in our ranch, the perennial grasses were behaving like annual grasses. Why? Because the way we were grazing like multiple times per year, we did, we, we were actually overgrazing the grass. Oh, and yes. then also the soils were very compacted. I think we come to the realization, Carl, that the major limitation on grass productivity is not water, it's air in the soil. It's aggregation, is that those porous airs in the soil. Because it doesn't matter how much rain you get, even if that rain actually gets infiltrated, if your grasses actually eat that compaction layer, then your root system is going to go to the sideways. It won't, it won't go deeper. And that's what we have seen in most ranches that we visited. Because, you know, one of the best tools we have 
It's a shovel. So we get to the shovel, we get it, and then we get the grass out. And most grasses where we go, they have a very shallow root system. So perennial grasses are supposed to have a very deep root system. They have a shallow root system because of compaction. So what really help us with compaction? Well, a more intensive grazing combined with a longer period. So that same grass that only used to be green, like four months, now we're able to have green grasses year-round. And you may say, yeah, but in Mexico, it's a bit warmer. Well, you know, the same, the same I'm experiencing. For example, Gabe Brown in North Dakota is experiencing with a uh, lot of snow. So I'm not saying that the grass is going to be like flash, full green, but we, hit, we have a little bit of green at the bottom. And that is enough for the cows to take that rough material you're talking about because they have green on the grass. When we have green on the grass, we have a couple of problems. First, we have to supplement. Second, we're not doing a photosynthesis. And the only way to open the soils, to get more air in the soil, is through the process of photosynthesis, because photosynthesis is going to be feeding the micro, what we call the microher. And that microher, specifically the mycorrhizal fungi, is the one creating the aggregates, which in between them, that's where we're going to create the air in the soil that would allow us to actually infiltrate more water and retain the water where the plant can use it. So it's this whole cycle of life that we're trying to promote. Oh, yes. Yeah. Moving just a little bit from that, but along the same subject, you also have sheep. Are you managing your sheep and cattle the same way? Fortunately not. I would love to do a better job on my sheep because the plan for the sheep is that they go wherever they want to go. We only move like on blocks or sections. The cattle, saddle horses, mares, and the a few donkeys, they are on the same on the same paddock, on the same small pastures, say paddock. Oh yeah. And the donkeys go I have a shepherd and guard dogs, the sheep. The sheep goes nearby. So we have like three corrals across the ranch and three houses. And then the shepherd and the sheep, when we move the cows to the new section, then the shepherd and the sheep go to the next corral. But they could be grazing in front or the back or around. So we try to, we try to, to keep the sheep nearby the, the, we need by the, the, the livestock. Now, the other thing that I now talking about you, about the, or, or mob, you know, mob of horses, cattle and donkeys. Why we do we have the donkeys? Because we have 20 donkeys and we're trying to get to the 10% of donkeys total. Because, you know, if we believe that what we're doing is mimicking nature, mimicking nature, why are we actually trying to do everything with just cows? Nature doesn't have just one grazing animal. And the beautiful thing about the donkeys is that they actually going to take a very low quality, like stems and these oxidized grasses and convert that into manure and urine and things like that. So the donkeys are actually allowing us or cows to be more selective because the donkeys are, I can tell the donkeys are non-selective and that's really helping us to do a better job and more even grazing. And you know, think about the donkeys. If I were going to start regenerating my place because it was in such a bad shape, I would use probably mostly donkeys. Because the donkeys, the donkeys are kind of open up a better 
plan of notation for the for the more selective like cattle or or sheep. You know, I've heard the the conversation about diversity in plants, diversity in your livestock too, because you know we're not wanting a monoculture anywhere. But to be honest, you're the first person I've talked to that's talked about that aspect of the donkeys. I could see how that could be beneficial where their intake's a little bit rougher. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely because it's going to take, at least where I am in a more arid environment, it's going to take years to convert that, for example, that tobosa grass, that it will be quite oxidized, a lot of stems, not very, not many leaves, shallow root system into a nice yellow, full of leaves, no stems, deep-rooted grass, it takes years. So trying to go from that point of a grass that is sick, thirsty, and almost in a survival mode to a thriving grass with just cows, oh my God, it's gonna, we're going to struggle a little bit. And, and that's, that's why the donkeys just come into play. I mean, it could be horses, core forces as well. Is that the evolution of horses and donkeys had been quite different? And the way we've been treating horses, actually, I mean, pro- probably putting aside the Mustangs, right? The wild horses, but our horses are really kind of pumper, you know? I mean, we like to have nice, shiny, good horses, but the donkeys, who actually cares about the donkey, right? <laughs> so the donkeys have, haven't really much, much manipulated and they actually try better on low quality. And I have to admit, we have a few donkeys, just, just a handful to go with the sheep. And to be honest, as we're talking about, I'm like, where are those donkeys right now? I need to go figure out where they are because they, they can be a little ornery about that sometimes. But yeah, they, I, I give them zero preferential treatment. But then again, I'm pretty um, pragmatic on my animals should be working and not me. Yeah, exactly. And then, for example, people who have a mountain range, like I do have mountains in uh, at the ranch. Sierra, what we call Sierra. The donkeys are really, really good on that because the donkeys are really good at walking. See, you can actually do some stockmanship and drive your cattle to the mountain range, to the, to the slopes and everything, but they have their limits. And then it's, you can see that and then you can see always the donkeys on a higher ground. So actually donkeys are helping us to graze parts of the mountain range that the cattle will not be able to do it. I see the, the donkey as a big goat, but not having the problem with, with predation and then you're using the same fences and so on. That's an interesting analogy is the donkey as a big goat. And you did mention you have a few goats as well. Yeah, I have a few goats, but actually goats are more like for our own consumption. We like to eat goats oh, yeah. once in a while. Yeah, but not com- it's not a commercial operation. But actually for commercial purposes, for, for as a business, is the cattle and the sheep. Oh, yeah. And where do you market your cattle and sheep? We we did a little bit of uh, direct marketing with our cattle and sheep, grass fed. Actually, we have like a ground, ground beef, ground meat, which is 80% beef and 20% lamb. But we also market dry, like a jerky beef. Jerky beef, it's just that the Mexi- Mexican version is slightly different because the Mexican version of jerky beef, which we call carne seca, it's more like a crisp, like a sheep. And then it's, it only has sea salt. So it kind of breaks, you know. 
So yeah, so we're marketing that, but it's still a small percentage of the total. So all we do is with the with the cold cows, cold animals, they go to a local market. Well, it's private treaty. The guy goes to the ranch. We we waited there, and then it's, it's all at the gate. And steers, we have the option of selling the steers on the Mexican mar- market or the U.S. market, whatever is more convenient at that time, price wise. Very good. Where where do you see your ranch going the next few years, or what's your plans for it? Yeah, you know, what we're trying to do, Carl, here is to make the operation as simple as possible. Because remember, as Lassiter said, the cattle business is a simple business. The most complicated thing is to keep it simple. So would like for my ranch to be managed by a key or a very old person and not to have anything complicated. So we try to keep it as simple as possible. One tractor, one small truck, and, and, and a few forces. Right now, what we're doing, try, well, keep it, keep, keep the run simple, keep the cost very low, and also increase the, 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 the token rate. Right now, we're running, uh, 500 cows, and now we're working on the water system to be able to support 1200 cows. So the idea is to go from 500 cows to 1200 cows. I don't really have a set limit because, you know, sometimes it rains good, sometimes it doesn't rain. But I'm actually working now on the water system to to support more cattle. And the nice thing about it is that it's on the same brand with the same people. Very good. Very good. Alejandro, it's been a great conversation thus far, but it's time we... No, we don't really switch gears too much because we've been covering this as we've talked more into our overgrazing section. And we had discussed a little bit about greening the desert. When you say that, are you going out there and planting seeds? I think it's very important all that uh, to consider what was in North America. I think that's one of the major advantages we have over other many countries. Our countries used to the bison, the deer, the antelope, the elk, the moose, and so on. They are grazing animals, and they 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 really used to keep our our soils and our grasses very healthy. So in our particular case, you know, when, when uh, Mexico was new Spain conquered by the Spaniards, they left a lot of writings, a lot of things that they saw. I don't know if you know this, Carl, but when the first priest, Spanish, Spanish priest came to, well, they were in Santa Fe and they were trying to find a way from Santa Fe, New Mexico to California. So they reached what is nowadays Utah, and they reached the Salt Lake City. And they said that the grasses there were taller than the saddle and that there was n- that was the most beautiful place that they have seen in all New Spain. So think about it. If you go to Utah right now, that's played, oh my God, it's like, oh. So one of the challenges, Cal, is that people are trying to sustain what they're seeing. What we're seeing is a very degraded place. I mean, pretty much all across all northern Mexico, western U.S. We don't want to sustain that. We want to regenerate the land in such a way that we are trying to go back to those beautiful scenes, those beautiful views that the first explorers used to experience. But because we don't have the conditions right right now to actually rewild with bison and wall, I mean, obviously all those elements are important. 
but we have the livestock. We have the livestock that actually can help us regenerate the places in such a way. For example, in my property, we have grasses that are like a seven feet tall, eight feet tall. For example, that's, that is called the green sprangle top. Actually, in the state of Chihuahua, we have already found the gamma grass. I mean, the cream, top of the cream. Those are native as well. But in order for those tall grasses to succeed, you cannot be grazing multiple times per year because you will be killing that grass. Oh, that yeah. Those tall grasses really need, and they are pretty, very palatable grasses. I'm not saying like, because we have other grasses that are, are not that like the, that, like the cotton top. They are good, they are tall, but they are not very palatable to the cattle. But the grass that I'm telling you, like the green spangle top and the gamma, gamma grass, those are really excellent grasses, but they need a full year of rice. And that's why it's so important the longest period. And if you go to the, to the literature of those grasses, the, the readings of those grasses, the, the, they're going to say those grasses need at least 20 inches. Well, we can grow those grasses with just six, six inches. So it's all about the, what you do with the soil, that soil will actually be able to extract more water, more effective rainfall as the fine balance every, because there was a study done in Colorado and as well in Chihuahua, where we only infiltrated like 30 to 40% of the rain. Think about it. If I'm in a 10 inch precipitation area, I'm only getting about four inches effectively. My God, that's okay. one of the reasons why we can really never get out of the drought because we have a shallow, shallow root system, grass are struggling, and then a very ineffective rainfall. And as you, you start to get that progression where you're starting to get more grasses in, are you seeing that same progression on the desert where you're getting the, the forbs and the weeds come up before you're getting some of these more desirable species? Definitely. I mean, something is happening at different times or different parts of the ranch. So historically, we have very good grasses and the seed, the seed bank in most places is still there. That's why you have that hard pan on the top of bare ground because nature is trying to protect the seed bank. That's why it's good to have the hard pan. When you're not managing well, I'm glad that we have the hard pan because that's strong the seeds. If you're talking about land that was previously farmed, then it's going to be a bit more challenging. But if, if that land, the only thing that they have had is only overgrazing, then the seed bank is going to be there. But more important than that, having the seed bank is actually to create the conditions for the grasses to germinate. Because it doesn't matter if you go right now to my ranch and collect those seeds from the tall grasses and then put it into your property. If you don't have created the conditions, they will not germinate. But if you created the conditions, even if the seed bank doesn't have the seeds, nature finds a way to put those seeds there. Actually, to wildlife, to birds, to livestock, to deer, to through the wind, to the water. But the important thing is to create the conditions for those seeds to germinate. And what are those conditions that you're creating for it to germinate? Yeah, the conditions we create is, first of all, it's very important to extend the green season for the grasses, like to see what our souls are lacking is biology. It's pretty much that biology, like life in life above and below ground. And is, let's say, put, put it as a sample, it could be sheep or donkey, but let's say that is the cow that is bringing that biology. 
through the manure, to the urine, to the saliva, even the act of breathing, to the hoops that is actually feeding that soil. So that soil is going to be actually saying, oh, great, now we have more biology and then we can grow better grasses and the grasses are going to feed the microbiology and that will actually start fixing the water cycle. See, because everything goes around water cycle. How many dumb beetles do you have? Well, let's say, let's say that you don't kill the dumb beetles, right, with ivermectin. How many dumb beetles do you have? Well, that depends obviously on a warm season, but also on the moisture in the soil. I mean, same deal for termites. All the different elements are helping us regenerate because it's not only livestock, it's also the insects that are going to line up with us uh, and help us re regenerate the place. Very good. Alejandro, thank you. We really appreciate the conversation, but it's time we go ahead and move on to our famous four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Oh, that's a great question. You know, there are some many states in the U.S. and also in Mexico, they come out like these conservation districts or even at the state level, they come out with these different grasses per state. Those are my favorite ones, you know, because I cannot look at it. You know, obviously we have also applications here to identify the grasses, but I learned from those books a lot and that's what I've been actually reading about. But it's actually specific to each location and whether oh, or yes. not the state or the district have already come out with that booklet, you know, that you can actually refer to. Very good. Yes. Excellent resource. Our second question, what is your favorite tool for the farm? My favorite tool for the farm? Well, it's the horse. For us, it's the horse because, see, I told you, Cal, that we move twice a day. So the yes. mornings we move, we, we do it on horse and the afternoon we do it on, on, on foot. So you actually see different things from the horse and on foot. You can, you can actually identify different cows that are struggling by actually going on foot or going on horse. And not actually horse actually help us to monitor what is next. We go and let's say we go to a pasture that is divided into multiple paddocks and then we determine by, by running our horses, what is how we're going to divide that pasture based on what we see. And well, the second tool that I love is the shovel. The shovel, because it really teach a lot about the soils. One thing interesting there you brought up, astride a horse, you have a different viewpoint than if you're walking. And I really hadn't thought about that. That's It's a different vantage point that really gives you a, mm. a nice overall view of it. That that could be a, a a really good selling point to convince me to get another horse. We sold our horses because they were consuming enough gr too much grass, and we weren't using them. That I could definitely see a advantage from being on a horseback to see the condition of your land a from a little bit different angle. Yeah, Carl. Obviously, we we are into the mid-sized to large properties where I mean we're lazy. We don't like to walk that much. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the horses really give you that easy going, you know, like getting a lot of ground cover by, and then you're making the minimal effort. Alejandro, our third question is what would you tell someone just getting started? For the people who are, are, who are starting, I would recommend a couple of things. First, to educate themselves. See, one of the things why we really haven't 
didn't make much progress, like let's say 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is because we didn't know how the tools we have to share, like all the social media, Facebook and, oh, yeah. and Instagram and YouTube and so many information that is out there, all these, like today, you know, this beautiful tool that you're using. So let's get more. And also it's very important for them to go and visit branches that are doing something already. So we have really that great opportunity right now. There's really no limits in, in regards to the, ma the material that is out there. It's just incredible that you can listen, you can read, you can naturally. And besides education, just to give it a try, I think we need to see our places more like a labs, laboratories, we, and then do small trials. For example, I, I, if, I if I tell you, Carl, okay, if you do this, if you select a good pasture in your run, and then you just give me seven days on that pasture. And then you move daily on those seven days or one week with your cows, right? So at the time that you're only giving them 24 hours of feed, then you automatically are get, getting more intensive grazing, right? Seven days. And then the deal here, you're in the Western US or even maybe where you are to protect that area for a whole year. Then that will oh, give yeah. you like a good reference to say, oh my God, I like it because I'm seeing more diversity. I'm seeing more biomass and so on. So those trials, and if we work as a community, then you can do two trials and the other guy can do two trials and then we are going to make much more progress, much faster. And yeah, that's my recommendation. Do more, try more at small scale and keep what it works and actually educate yourself in so many tools and books that we Excellent advice there. And lastly, Alejandro, how can others find out more about you? Under my name, we're in Facebook and uh, LinkedIn. We also have an Instagram account with the name of the ranch, Las Damas, Las Damas Cattle Ranch. And yeah, you can follow us there. We, we, we try to post as often as possible or even actually webinars, podcasts, uh, workshops that sometimes we do. Actually, we're doing a workshop in Oklahoma next year. So I keep you posted. Oh, yes, please do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, very good. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing today. No, thanks for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure to share some of our experiences. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer in their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, Keep on grazing grass. Thank you for listening. If you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest link. We are looking for guests for this year. So if you're interested, Go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. We appreciate your support by 
sharing our episodes, and telling your friends about it. You can also support the show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is through our Patreon. If you'll go over to grazinggrass.com and click on support, you'll see our links there. And that lists some ways you can support it. But you can click on the Patreon link. And for a small amount a month, you help support this podcast so we're able to put out more episodes. And we appreciate that. Also, there is a second level there. If you're a beginning farmer or just getting started and you're wanting more assistance, there is a start grazing grass level there that you could subscribe to and gain more information. No matter what you choose to do, we appreciate you listening. Keep on grazing grass.